have the wonderful pleasure of having Dr. Matt Russell and Marlon Lizama. They are uh, founders of Iconoclast Artist, a group that cultivates and encourages students to express themselves through arts, specifically through poetry. How's it going? Hey, what's going on? How's everyone doing? Thank you. Awesome. I'm going to take one from your playbook. Come on, guys. Is that all you got? How's it going? <laughs> yeah. That's right. You get you got to know that you're around a MC par excellence in Marlin. So he's he's the he's the hype man, the motivator. <laughs> no doubt. I'm waiting for you to overload this mic and amp this place up. <laughs> No, but seriously, uh, thank you so much, guys, for coming on and uh, taking the time to come out today. Yes, really. You guys hanging in there? It's beautiful weather today. Man, it's been great. So as I said, you guys are the founders of Iconoclast. When did you guys start this endeavor? Um, Tell uh, everybody a little bit more about it and and what you're working on. Okay. Um, Matt, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. Um, So Iconoclast is... uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a grassroots program that really began in the heart of uh, Marlin. Part of it began in the heart of Marlin. Part of it began in the heart of me. And we met in the middle. Um, but really, um, it was something that Marlin had in his gut for a while to do, working with um, community-based programs. I had moved back from um, – I moved to, to Houston and was involved in attempting to, to look at the city through a different type of lens than just kind of all the divides that we were in uh, and was really interested in uh, figuring out how to um, bridge these divides. And so Iconoclast Artists became a part of that kind of experiment and a part of that endeavor to figure out if, one, we could impact um, the lives of at-risk students and on, on, on really underserved students and and, um, and populations that, that both Marlon and I have a heart for. And, uh, and also, could we create a new type of community in Houston that uh, kind of tore down dividing walls um, that exists within our city. And so we did that through this uh, uh, creative writing program that now has components of social and emotional learning and a performance piece to it and a, um, an app-based program that's uh, connected to it now and also um, books that we're writing, uh, that students are writing and an et- kind of a social entrepreneur aspect to it. So um, that's a quick thumbnail <laughs> sketch. It, it really... I mean, we talk about this all the time, and Marlon, I'll let you, I mean, you jump in, but we, it started over a plate of tacos, um, and um, a mutual friend that said, you guys both have, I mean, Marlon has a crazy idea, would you meet with this guy? I'd never met him, and so we sat over, down over a, a plate of tacos, and and um, he shared with me what he was thinking, and it sparked something in me that I was thinking, and we just thought, oh, let's try this. Uh, that's great, and uh, Marlon? Yeah, I mean, uh, from my end, uh, I was a, how do I say this? Uh, I was a break dancer for 20 years, and uh, I traveled all over the place competing, and uh, I was really into hip-hop culture. Um, and something that hip-hop did in me, it, uh, it opened my creative side, and it allowed me to just keep dreaming and keep writing and keep dancing and keep listening to music. And... Uh, I grew up in an at-risk neighborhood and, uh, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm one of those Texans that is, uh, an immigrant. Uh, and you know, I came here when I was nine years old and, 
and I, I, I got accepted by different cultures, different subcultures. So, you know, I couldn't connect in, in, a, in a way that everybody else was connecting simply because I had poverty to overcome. I had at-risk neighborhoods to overcome. I had, uh, my mom was a single mom. And, and so um, I used to get lost in music and storytelling and poetry and books. And, um, and it, it just, it, it really, uh, it saved me. It saved me in such a way that, that I always thought like, man, arts, that's the most powerful thing in the world. And then when I grew up and, and I started getting jobs and wanting to work with my community, I realized how it wasn't valued as, as I valued it, right? Like it, it wasn't used as a tool to really create impact and change in the communities that we worked with. It was always some kind of, um, it, it, was, it was always some kind of health fair sort of thing when it came to our communities of color. And, and I lived in those apartment complexes. And I remember people coming to my apartment complex and giving me a free sandwich and a T-shirt and taking a picture of me. And I remember the words impact and change and things like that. And I'm like, wait, I'm, I'm still hungry the next day. You know, I'm still living in a bad area the next day. I'm still I'm still depressed. And so um, I remember finding myself in the arts and finding myself in music and dance and poetry and writing and storytelling. And that was the first time I ever felt empowerment. And after that, after I learned to tell my story, I realized that I had control of my life. I had control of my narrative. There's some things that I couldn't control, like economics and things like that. But, but the one thing that I could control was my story. Right. I could tell my story. And all of a sudden I started, I was able to to not only tell my story, but was able to communicate and connect. And I was able to leave my my neighborhood for the first time. And so I carried that with me. And as I traveled the world and, and, and I came back to Houston and it's the same thing that Matt just said. He came back to Houston. Right. And when I came back, I, I, I how do how do I share this idea with everyone, right? Like, how do I, how do I connect with people in this way that I know works? And uh, I, I approached different programs, I approached different nonprofits, and they would give me these minimal roles, and and they would they would test some of it, but they wouldn't really buy all the way in. And uh, I remember I called a, a an old mentor of mine, and and I, I just asked them, I'm like, hey man give me an old building. I want to create a school and I want to feature the, the dopest artists in the world. And I want to, I, I, I want to just, I want to just change everything. And he goes, that's dumb. He goes, no one's going to call it 21 jump street. <laughs> yeah. He goes, no one's going to go to you. What's that's already been done on ABC <laughs> at six o'clock. <laughs> like, you understand how big Houston is. No one's going to your dumb school. Nobody's, and I'm like, dang, okay. Wow. And then he goes, he goes, you know what? You need you need to be in the schools and those communities you're talking about. Uh, and he's like, you need somebody just to help you out. And I think I have the perfect person. And uh, he introduced me to Matt. And uh, Matt was basically, let's do it. Next day, I quit my job. He was like, wait, wait. I didn't. Can I tell this part of the story? Because this is really hilarious, and I don't get, I don't get, we don't get to tell it too often. Because at, simultaneously at that time, I'm working in a church, but I've been kind of really, in some ways, like um, 
I have a love hate relationship with organized religion. Um, um, and, and I'm always standing kind of on the inside of the outside edge with my eye on the exit, <laughs> um, you know, because I, I have this kind of suspicious relationship with, with organized religion. I think it could be uh, such an agent for good, but it's constantly just tripping over itself and it's answering questions that no one is asking often, right? right. Um, and it's not, it's not uh, involved in big issues like uh, systemic racism or poverty, or the liberation of human persons writ large, you know, and whether that has to do with human sexuality or that, that it has to do with economic oppression. And so often the church finds itself in these small, um, angry um, kind of um, um, roadsides, you know. Um, and so um, when I, I um, when we had moved back to Houston, I was really interested in seeing if the church could get into a bigger picture within what it meant to be in the center of issues around racial justice and in the center of economic um, um, equity, those kinds of things. Matt, where, where um, were so, you before you came back to Houston? So I had, um, I was in, um, I had gone and done a uh, PhD in, um, uh, at Texas Tech University in around issues of trauma, how people integrate um, stories of trauma uh, into their lives. And then uh, I went to Cambridge University and did a postdoc at Cambridge for um, about two, two and a half years. And then came, never thought we'd, I lived in Houston for a long time before that, never thought we'd come back. Um, and when we moved back, um, was working at St. Paul's United Methodist. They really had a vision at that time for the city of Houston in a, in a pretty substantial way. Uh, and it was really a great fit for me. And that's where I met um, that's when Marlon and I had met, but but when I met him, we kind of it sparked some things I was thinking about in terms of kind of um, this movement for the liberation of human persons, um, um, uh, and really to begin to look at issues around white privilege and and supremacy and how do you deconstruct that and really kind of begin to uh, decenter some of these structures around whiteness and recenter um, voices of color. And not just recenter, but really allow those just voices of leadership. And one of the things you'll know once you get to know Marlon more and more is that this is, I mean, beyond just the really cool clothes and sweet art he has uh, in his background there. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I was enamored uh, of that as well. He's a community organizer and he's a leader. And that's, that's something he might not um, – uh, those might not be phrases that he uses to describe himself, but um, you're around him long enough. You go, oh, I'm, I know a leader when I see a leader. And I know a community organizer when I see a community organizer. And that sparked kind of both of those things that kind of exist in us. And so when we came together, I had a friend that was coming uh, to visit from England who is a, an academic poet in Cambridge University. And this guy looks like a, I mean, Marl and I kind of think he looks like a hobbit. Uh, and you know, you think he's right out of, I mean, he's just right out, of, right out of the Shire. Oh, yeah, I mean, right out of some Tolkien novel. His name is Malcolm Geit. Nice. You can, you can YouTube it and 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 watch him read poetry. And he's got the beard, and, and he, uh, he, he's just he's an amazing human being. And what I thought what we could do is kind of put if we brought Malcolm together and Marlon together. Uh, and one is an academic poet, 
and one and an academic just brilliant mind and one is a um, really a purveyor of kind of cultural artifacts within his own kind of histories that's in Marlin and that we could bring two different communities together and we could begin to bridge divides and might we do that through the arts and so we threw a big party at uh, St. Paul's and we thought I know I thought I'd be really happy if we had 50 folks there it ended up being about 200, 250 oh, folks wow. that showed up. Oh, That's wow. awesome. And it was just, it was nuts. And we were like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and so we, and the interesting thing about this first, we called it um, an iconoclast session. And um, the interesting thing about it is that we had a lot of folks that knew Marlon that were in the room. Um, and then a lot of kids that were from kind of an organization that, um, both of us were involved in called Youth Advocates. And then we had a lot of folks from like Rash University and St. Thomas University, Houston, uh, University of Houston, and then St. Paul's community that wanted to see Malcolm because he is so amazing in his poetry. And they began to exchange poems um, in, in the room. And it was, it was incredible, um, mainly because they're both amazing at their craft. And they were able to make connection with each other um, across, you know, the gulf of of all of that in a way that was just beautiful. There was a a, a, a point that I'll, I'll shut up in a second. There's a point <laughs> where where Malcolm uh, and Marlon said, I, well, "I think at in some point we ought to um, trade poems. I'll read one of yours, and you read one of mine." And they did that. When Malcolm read. Um, Marlon's poem, and I remember it was about Marlon. It was about your, uh, it was about your brother. And there's a line in there about being a day laborer, where uh, I think the poem, the line of the poem says, "My resume, my my only resume is my pants." Hmm. Um, um, and there was a hush that fell over the 250 folks that were in that room, like it became something else. It was altered, you know. It was, um, it was, it was amazing. And I remember starting to tear up over that. I, I, I was watching Marlon's face really close. And, um, and it was just this amazing moment. And he said, Marlon said at the end, um, I've never heard my poem like that. Oh, wow. To hear from the way that both interpreted it, but also the, the, um, it was performed in a different way. And so he could hear it differently. Um, mm -hmm. and after it was all over, um, um, a lady came up to me and said, I want to meet you in your office, um, next week if you can. And I said, okay, I thought maybe she was mad or something. And so, um, <laughs> going to go to detention. So, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I set up, I, I set up the meeting and in the meantime, Mal uh, Marlon calls me, um, about three or four days before this and before this, um, the, the iconoclast section. And he, he leaves a message on my machine and on my machine. That's it tells you my age. The carrier pigeon. Amen. And he said, Hey Matt, I just want you to know I did it. And he just hung up. So I called him back. I'm like, what'd you do? He's like, I put my two week notice in. And I put my job. Wow. <laughs> now at that point, I'm like, Okay. All right. Uh, he's like, so in two weeks, just let me know where I'm supposed to be and what we do. And I, I we had no budget. There was no money. <laughs> go big, was, go I mean, I, uh, we had a, we had a 
we had a piece of paper that we drew up on this napkin at a taco stand. Nice. And he quit, he quit a job with insurance. He's trying to feed his family. I'm like, and I panicked, right? But I, <laughs> I didn't tell him that I was like panicky. And we hung up and I was like, oh, this is not good. This is not good at all. So this lady shows up in my office and she said, what are you trying to do there? And I said, well, and kind of explain what Marlon had explained earlier and what I explained. And she pulled out a checkbook and wrote a check for $35,000. Wow. Wow. And I sat in that office and I cried like a baby because I had, I mean, I'm, and this didn't happen. It does not happen. And um, she said, if you can, um, if I'll make this also a matching grant. So if you can match it, I'll give you another 35. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> and um, I mean, I was blown away. And she walked out. I didn't know this woman. Um, um, it was just amazing. And so um, I called I called Marlon and said, hey, bro, I got you. We got this. No problem. <laughs> I tried to act really cool. <laughs> right after you cried your eyes but it was out. Just, uh, I, yeah, think, uh, it was, uh, I think the great thing about this is that, you know, neither of us knew – you know, exactly what the program would look like. Um, the only thing that I knew is that I knew that I can impact students. I knew that I had a story. I knew that I can teach this. Um, and we started with two schools. We we're like, let's pick, let's pick the worst. Let's pick the schools that are most challenged and Lee high school and Sharpstown high school. Um, uh, at Lee high school, they speak over 30 different languages there. Uh, there's it's a big refugee population. I went to the principals, both principals, and I was like, give me the students that are one foot out the door. And they were like, gladly. Yes. <laughs> go. And they went. Go. And, you know, and I was like, I'm like, man, that was too easy. They put, a, they put a guard outside this door, too. They were like, wait. Oh, man. I was like, that was too easy. Um, you know, and I, I went into there and I, I basically said, give me a year with these students. I will be here every week. And they were like, you're not going to come every week. And I'm like, I'll be here every week. Let me see what we can do. So take us to that first day. It was, wow. you know, it's so funny because I just, I've been, these schools have been a part of my life, my entire life. You know, these are my schools. These are my students. This was me. There's no awkwardness, right? There, it's this instant rapport because I have a story, right? Um, this this was my teaching tool in the beginning, which is my book, um, and it's 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 a book on immigrant poetry, and it's a story about my grandmother and my mother and immigrating, and and I mean it's it's my story. There's a poem in here called "Where I'm From," and I always open up with this poem to my students, and I tell them, I'm like, listen, we're gonna become poets and writers, and they look at me like I'm from Mars, <laughs> right? I start telling them about my story, and then I start telling them about things that they know about, right? I'm not going over their heads. I'm not talking about the ocean and the universe and the stars in your eyes. Like, we're talking about culture and growing up and, and struggle and things like that. And so once I started uh, connecting with them in that way, and once I started saying that there's poetry in your story and everyone can be a poet, Right. I remember my mother making me read Pablo Neruda when I was young. 
uh, every time I would get, get in trouble, she would make me read Pablo Neruda. And I always say this joke, at age nine, I was reading Pablo Neruda. By age 10, I was the most romantic kid in the world because I was always in trouble. <laughs> um, but I loved, I loved Pablo Neruda. But the problem was yeah. he, I didn't live in a romantic place. I wasn't a poet like that. I didn't have those clothes. I didn't have that vocabulary. So when hip hop came into my life and they started telling stories of our neighborhoods. And I remember one teacher told me that rap stood for rhythm and poetry. That blew my mind. I'm like, wait, what? He goes, rap stands for <laughs> rhythm and poetry. And I remember reading Tupac Shakur, The Rose That Grew From The Concrete. Yeah. And I remember just saying, oh my God, I can talk about my struggle? And and I remember like conveying this message to my students, but I was saying it in a way that they understood everything I was saying. And so when I brought up things about La Lechuza and La Llorona and, and, and their stories that they grew up with and their superstitions and we're celebrating them. Like all of a sudden they're not studying 400 year old poetry. They're studying right now poetry. Yeah. Tangible, visceral. And so my job was to connect them with voices that sounded like theirs and people that looked like them. And for the first time, this was for the very first time, I had a classroom of 15-year-olds who were one foot out the door, all of a sudden writing and paying attention and coming in. I remember in the mid-year, I had a young black boy who came up to me and he goes, yo, you know who this James Baldwin fella is? I'm like, yo, who is he? You got to read him, right? That's the way it works. Like Tupac Shakur will lead you to Saul Williams. Saul Williams leads you to James Baldwin. And then all of a sudden you go back to understanding the greats. And it was about giving them confidence enough to for them to understand poetry and giving them the confidence enough for them to have the audacity to write poetry. And then ultimately for them to demand to be heard. And at the end of the year, I had a student say, hey, I like this poetry thing. I'm a writer now. Now what? Mm. And that's how our program kept growing by that question, now what? And so the now what was our first anthology. Nice. And this was by a kid who rudely told me, now what? And I would every time I would hear a now what, I would go to Matt. Now what? <laughs> Worked for him, huh? <laughs> and all we knew was, now what? We yeah, have. And to Marlon said to me, Marlon said to me that first year, at the end of this year, I want to produ- I want our kids to produce a book, um, that, of poetry that is bounded. And he he spoke that thing into being, and he was like, now go, let's go make this happen. Yeah. Right? And so by the end of that year. Um, that's what happened. Um, and I went and hustled in front of the uh, um, Museum of Fine Arts, and they gave us space and um, ended up opening up the doors for us for free and underwrote that whole evening. Yeah. And we had, I think, the first the first book release. We had 400 folks in the Carolyn Wise Law Building with our students. That it, and and again, I mean, Marlon and I, Marlon and I, at the end. We're just kind of in tears walking out of that place 
watching what happened. Then next year we had 700. The year after that, uh, a little more. You know, it's just grown every year um, at the at the museum. It's been amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And this is the beautiful part about it is is that we kept evolving with our students. I think a yeah, lot of the times, right. academic right. experts and things like that. We're, we get so caught up in what we know that we stop listening to the people that we're supposed to help, right? Yeah, and, that's right. And I love, I love the idea of coming in a room and I'm being a part of your experience. I'm not trying to be I'm trying to be a gardener, right? I'm trying to provide soil and sunlight for you so you can grow and I can grow with you, right? So the second year, we started noticing students missing from our classrooms. And I would always ask, where's this kid? Where's this kid? And they're like, oh, he got into a fight or he got a ticket. Now he's locked up. And for the first time, Matt and I were looking at the school to prison pipeline. And that was a real conversation that we had to have. How do we stop this? Because we need to be in places that our students are. Right. Um, And this was a very tough conversation uh, between us simply because we've always had these tough conversations simply because we've always faced our students' struggles and what our students carry on their shoulders, it is too much, right? It is too much. And I I remember going to the lockdown, not knowing anything. We just basically walked in the door and was like, hey, you have our students. We need to be here. And I remember there's this one man, Richard Evans, basically was so moved by that idea. He was like, okay, welcome to jail. Wow. He opened up the cells. The first day I went there, I just remember them slamming the, the cells. And I was like, why do, why do they do that? I, I remember asking a guard. His response was, we have to remind them that they are locked up. Wow. And, and that, you know, and it, it was crazy because I've had a few breakdown moments in my career, especially with our program and i just remember calling matt and i just for the first time i felt like i was not strong enough for this because it was just such a tough position to be at and i remember saying outcome but we can't have a class that is in a lockdown i demand this classroom be in a different space and I remember every single guard in there, well, they're locked up. We have to treat them like they're locked up. And I remember this man saying, would a library be okay? We can put some couches in there. We can put some pictures in there and it could be okay. And one time a week, these kids could have been at any library in, in Houston. And, and those kids appreciated it so much. They appreciated it so much that Every time it was our class, they were they were they were free for that hour. There were poets and there were writers. You know, um, we realized that we were opening up all these. We're opening up a lot, and I went up to Matt. I'm like, he introduced me to this term, social emotional learning. <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, yeah, we need some of that. <laughs> Because one of the yeah, because one of the things that we were realizing that Marlon was encountering. Uh, uh, let, let me pause this and say this too about the program is one of the things I've noticed. One of the things that is genius about the way that Marlon teaches is that it's um, you don't know you're being taught 
in a sense, right? You you don't because uh, kids will walk out and say that wasn't class; it was way too fun. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that 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 couldn't be class because I want to go back there, right? And so there's something about hip hop culture that values the um, the internal and the lived experience of the person. And so you are the expert of your own experience, right? And so you don't have to walk into a school feeling stupid because you don't know um, uh, what the a test is. Your own life is the test. Uh, and so um, what I've watched Marlon do time and time again is unlock um, the experience through words uh, and through images and then watch the students critique each other and become each other's coach and teacher under the really kind of creative tutelage of Marlon's um, pedagogy, the way he approaches learning um, in ways that then the students then, and, and one of the things we'll say all the time that Marlon has already talked about, is we really feel like we're co-creators in this process, right? right? right. That we're creating alongside of, of the students. And that's a value that Marlon continues just to, uh, um, to talk about uh, both to our board and to the partners that we have that we're co-creating with students. We do have a body of knowledge that we want to teach, but it's much more than that, too. I would think that Marlon brings a genuine respect immediately, you know, once you come into the room. And also, I would imagine that, you know, when you go into this library, that they can leave behind all the garbage that maybe goes on when they hear that cell door close and they can kind of, you know, feel free, I would imagine. I mean, both, you know, physically, but also mentally when they get into the poetry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think eventually, like, yeah, you know, right. can I, can I say this? Yeah, definitely. I just want to say something that Marlon had began to, we began to talk about is really about the third year in after the lockdowns, uh, maybe like two and a half years in, we began to, um, really understand that the, what the students were writing about was not kind of um, gang culture or street culture. They were writing about their own neighborhoods, about poverty, about police violence, about the incarceration of their parents or their brothers or their mothers or their sisters, about the uh, lack of food in their homes. They were writing about all of the, about immigrant, being an immigrant and what that felt like to live in that precarious uh, position of a DACA, of being a, a student that was under the, um, the category of DACA. Uh, and um, one of the things that, as that second year wrapped up, that I began to wonder is, uh, and we began to have this discussion again with each other, was do we have an ethical responsibility, not just to take these stories and to publish them, but the ethical responsibility to the content of their stories? So when a kid is talking about a fear of going home at night or um, walking into their own neighborhood and not knowing what will happen or seeing the trauma, absorbing the trauma of violence uh, in their neighborhood or in their home, do we as, um, as mentors and as teachers have an ethical responsibility to engage with that? We quickly said yes. And so out of that, we began to embed what um, social and emotional learning within everything that we do. And in some ways, what Maul and I will now say is we really are a a social and emotional learning program 
that is the delivery system is the arts. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, what we want to do is teach resiliency and grit and um, how to have good communication and how to have positive cultural and, and ethnic identity within oneself through this vehicle of arts and, um, and writing. And so um, that's become a real core focus of our program after about the second year. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's beyond words, as they say. <laughs> how, does that, how does that change with, uh, with COVID? How, how has that changed in the delivery of your teaching style? Because I, I think the one-on-one is important for you guys, right? So how is COVID and being in a remote state, how does that, how, how has that affected you guys? Well, one of, one of the main things that, that we do really well is uh, we partner up with schools. So when we say we partner up with schools, it's not about, hey, give us a space and then we come to your space and then we leave. It's really about, uh, it, it takes a village, you know, uh, for us. Like, I wish I can tell you it's, it's all us. It's all, it, it isn't. It's the teachers. It's the counselors. It's the principals. It's connecting with everyone. Um, we have such a great system. So if we go to your school, that means we are, I'm going to have a teacher that's going to champion that program. I'm going to have a counselor that I can refer those students to. I'm going to have a principal that's going to say, Hey, I got you. Right. Uh, that's one of the things that we have been doing very well. And we did that from day one, simply because we were always understaffed. We're always understaffed. (laughs) Yeah. And without the teachers, we're without these teachers, you know, because, you know, our teachers are our editors, our teachers are our chauffeurs, our teachers are, uh, they, yeah. they take kids to the events. Uh, you know, um, as a matter of fact, the, the second year I told Matt, I'm like, hey, we need a curriculum. And never once did we say, well, let's find people that write curriculum. I'm like, no, we have the teachers. And so when we would ask the teachers, hey, if you could teach any, what, anyone, if you can teach anything, what would it be? And you just see their eyes light up. And they were like, oh, my God, I would teach Nikki Giovanni. I would teach, you know, they just start just <laughs> yeah. dropping all these names. And so this curriculum was created by teachers who felt silenced themselves, who felt like mm-hmm. they, were, they were a victim of testing themselves. And so we created a curriculum that was basically the question if we left this curriculum on a school bus or on a public bus, if a student found this, can they figure it out? And that was, that was the main thing to our curriculum. And we, um, and that, that sparked a seed in us, right? That sparked a seed in us to where we were like, wow, how do we make this a lot better? Right. And then Matt came in and said, Hey, let's make an app that we can't afford. <laughs> I hear the technology to the rescue. Yes. Yes. And that and and that now that is the answer to how are we doing this today, right? Is being able to still connect with our students at a very high level, not only connecting them in this way, but connecting them in a way that they have something at their disposal that they can understand and answer and, and, and read ahead and still be inspired by new people. Um, I love always evolving and, and, and evolving not only with the times, but with the needs of our community. And that is something that we have been paying attention to since day one. Um, 
it is tough right now. It is super tough. It's tough for everyone, especially teachers, right? And our schools and our principals, they are very, they are very honest with us. And so right now, what we are doing is trying to support the students and trying to support teachers. And so that's, that's all we can do right now, simply because it's just really tough for everyone. One thing that we did do is we went back and became what, how we started was creating. We went back to the drawing board and how do we make what we are doing a whole lot better? How do we make our, cur- our curriculum a whole lot better? How do we create this app to really impact our students? Um, this has been a really challenging year. But I think uh, the good thing about us is every year is a challenging year. <laughs> That's a given. <laughs> that is a theme. Uh, it's a great, but it's a great, it's a great struggle. You know what I mean? It's a great challenge. And every year we come out with a different book. And uh, oh, That's awesome. And for the listeners, if you could just maybe describe some of the books that you're holding up in the video. So just like Matt says, when, when our students write, they um, – they say always comes out in, 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 the, in the lines, right? When it, it comes to describing people or, or describing situations, it's like they say this, they say that. Um, so we decided to name our book, They Say, right? This is our anthology. This is what our students are saying. This is what we say. That's what they say. Um, and we love we loved that title. Um, and these books are so awesome simply because there are students in here without last names. And the students that don't have any last names in our books are incarcerated. Oh, wow. So it's super powerful uh, in that way because it gives you a, a picture and a window to a lot of our students. But it surprises you what they write about, right? Like the cool things is, is when, you, when you see a kid that's been incarcerated for a couple of months and they're still writing about their mother, right? It's so powerful. Um, I love the idea. I, I love the idea of, of, of reading your poem from a book. And so that was one of the main things that I love about our program is for kids to see themselves and for them to like be in front of 600 people at the Museum of Fine Arts saying, turn to page 52. That's where my poem is. <laughs> yeah. I'll be signing merch after this. So. <laughs> you know, no, we, yeah, we do. We And a lanyard that has their name that says artist on it. And they, you can come up afterwards and get your book autographed. Uh, it's, it's, awesome. it's phenomenal. It's so dignity giving and inspiring. And so two years ago, two years ago, one of my students came up to me, uh, a student came up to me at, at Sharpstown High School and said, hey, I love what you're doing with the class. Um, I want to be a part of your class, but I can't speak English. Can you teach this in Spanish? And I said, if you give me 12 students, I'll do a Spanish class. All right. Wow. He got me. He got me 40. Oh, <laughs> oh man. He got me 40 students that were uh, here in the United States two years or less, and we created the first AO's Decent Amazon. <laughs> nice. Nice. Oh, yeah, and this is our kid. Spanish. This is our first, yes, this is our first Spanish book. And it was the birth of our Spanish program. And the, the cool thing in my head, I was like, oh, I speak Spanish. It should be good. I just translate our <laughs> curriculum into Spanish. Yeah, it turns out, no. We had to create in Spanish for Spanish students from all the different places that they came from. Wow. Right? 
and that was another challenge where I was like, man. And so I started asking schools, well, how many, how many kids like this do you have in your schools? And all these schools started saying 300, 250. Wow. Austin High School said we have 450 students that are just on the outskirts. Wow. They are not connected to anything. They have been here yeah. two years or less. And we don't have anything for them. The language barrier is too great. You know, and and I we love those challenges simply because I mean these are still our kids. These are still our students. These are the kids that are still in our communities, right? So we we have done our Spanish program for two years, two years in a row. And I mean it's just it's just one of the most beautiful programs that there is. And the great thing about my Latino kids is that we freely speak about God in the classroom because God and faith is such a big part of their lives. Right. There is no, there is no taboo that no, they're talking about Maria and they're talking about Dios and Jesus and, and it's in their poetry and, and they pass and they, 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 they talk about veladoras and, and, and candles and prayers and, and it's just it's just mind blowing on like their imagination and and finding a space for them, right? In the beginning, we used to say we create safe spaces, and then Matt one up me and said we create safe spaces. Wow, well, I think I just I think I stole that from Maya Angelou. <laughs> Nobody delivers it like you did, Matt. I'm sure. Patent pending. Patent pending. <laughs> So I wanted to, uh, I just happen to have a couple of poetry readings that have been presented at uh, They Say. Uh, The first one is from an artist, uh, her name is Amani, and uh, correct me on the name if I don't have it right. Uh, I wanted everyone to hear the fruits of your labor, uh, because, you know, when I was listening to these earlier today, I mean, they might as well have been written you know, they were they were written in and presented in 2018, or at least they were presented in 2018. But the words, I mean, they they could have been presented this year. So, let me see uh, if you guys can hear this, and then uh, we'll get your response. Take a listen. They tell you you're not crap because you're not the color of cream. You got to sag, listen to rap music, and when you ride, you got to lean. If you're anywhere near brown and hope to God you're not near black, you're considered to be disgusting, maybe even lower than trash. But don't even get me started if you excuse me, have a vagina, can't be holy because you don't have the same parts as the Messiah. But don't forget the heaven that he came from. You know the woman that he called mom? Female. Shows we don't need man to do great things. I'm not saying I'm going to make you bow down, but all hail the queen. Don't let them make you feel imperfect. God made you this way on purpose. You are fearfully, beautifully, and wonderfully made. So think about that while you sip on your Kool-Aid. Snap, 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 right? (laughs) I mean, mean, she tries to mic drop that thing every time she opens up, right? (laughs) All right. I mean, so uh, what do you think about when you hear that two years later? You know, I've had Imani since she was in ninth grade. Um, she is now in her first year of college. Um, she is a powerhouse. As a matter of fact, uh, we are in discussions of making her uh, an intern um, for our program. She, uh, Imani is one of those young girls that if you don't do anything with her, it's just, it's, it's just a sin. 
right? Because she's so talented and she's so powerful, right? So when I first when I first met her, I, I, I just, her voice was just so like, it was just on another level. So I was like, man, you just need to be heard, you know? And I remember her asking me, well, are you going to get upset if I cuss a little bit? I'm like, no, I'm like, I, I want to see what you create. And are you going to be upset if I push it a little bit? Like, are you going to, I'm like, no, I'm just here to be a fan. You know, and I remember her from ninth grade to her 12th grade year and just like this, this air about her, like this, this aura that was just powerful. Right. And, and from ninth grade to 12th at, in her senior year, it's like she she got it. And this is what we want to do. We have seen two graduating classes. Right. We have followed students from ninth grade all the way to 12th. And we're blessed in this way. Right. So. Right now, we have students that I have had since seventh grade. They're in 10th grade right now. Like, I'm going to see them become adults, right? So we have kids that are now, right now, we have an intern. Her name is Angela Galvez. I met her when she was in ninth grade at Yes Prep, right? Uh, Our program discontinued Yes Prep because we had so many other schools. She sent me an email. She goes, oh, hell no. (laughs) I I demand to be a part of your program. So she became a part of the program through emails. She graduated high school. She became our intern. Now she's going to graduate college. You know, and so when you talk about, so when you talk about impact, and I remember hearing these words growing up, and I remember hearing these words from HR and and all these nonprofits that, that I was a part of. And when we heard the word impact and things like that, in my mind, this is impact, right? Watching someone grow up, being consistent in their life, them knowing that they're going to be able to count on you, right? And I think that's really tough for a lot of people to come through in that way, you know? And that, that takes a lot from, it takes a lot out of you. Right. Because I have seen kids get out of jail and then go right back in. And so say this also, I I think one of the important things about her poem is um, is is one. It's not it's extraordinary, but it's also um, if if you read that book, you'll see almost every poem that's that is really riffing off of themes that Amani's talking about. So you have a high school student at Springwoods High School that is talking about issues around being a woman in a male-dominated society, about being a black woman, uh, a woman of color in, um, in a white society, about violence that is perpetrated out of that. So you have all these themes that these kids are playing with as as. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds, right? And they're doing it with such acuity, with such power, with such nuanced language that um, that you think, how does this happen? You know, there's there's a beauty and a power that resides in these students that we don't give them credit for. And so um, one of the things that I, just, I love about what, um, what these students are producing is that they are wrestling with issues that I don't think um, many of the adults know how to meet them on, right? 
Uh, we don't know how to then allow our schools to become schools of, uh, of really human liberation because we are so consumed with teaching tests and teaching certain types of curriculum. And these students have moved beyond that in some ways. I'm not saying that some of the, the basics aren't important, but these students are ready to create and evoke social change. Um, and you see it in the things they write about. You see it in how they construct their own friendships in these communities that we're a part of. And it's, a, it's an honor to know students like Amani and to be a part of her life uh, and to, to be a place where her voice can not just be heard but amplified. Yeah, and I think you said it great. I mean, uh, imagine like how many stories before you guys started this, however many years ago, that, you know, were internalized and not being able to be vocalized and talked about and, uh, and dealt with. I also, I also think it's, it's, a, it's a great way to, to value who they value. You know, at the end of the day, Kendrick Lamar just got the Pulitzer, right? For a rap album, a rapper got the Pulitzer for, for literature, right? Um, uh, Breakdancing is going to be in the Olympics. You know, this is, these are things that were, were grown out of subculture and poverty and struggle and kids that were looking for alternatives to gangs and, and prison. And, and they were just saying, I want to say no to violence, but I don't know what else is there, right? And so you create an environment that really values their idea and their thought process and, and gives them a little platform or a blueprint for them to be able to put these thoughts on paper. And it, it becomes magic, right? And, and, and to be able to talk about these feelings that you're having and and I think there should be feminism in high school and middle school. There should be African-American studies and Mexican-American studies. And there should have all these things. I don't understand what's the, I, I have no clue why I have to go to college to understand who I am. You know, and this is crazy to me. And so I, the idea of, of bringing in artists to a classroom and the idea of your school saying, I value your voice so much that I'm allow these guys to take the time from an English class. That says a lot to a student. That says a lot. That means that, that, that yes, we understand there's a huge problem in our school. Help us out. And I love the idea of when we partner with the school, we are partnering with these people that really get it. Yeah, that really get it. And I that's the beautiful thing about about partnerships with our neighborhoods and our, our schools is that we're partnering up with ideas of like, hey, their voice matters. Them being creatives matter. Have you uh, seen violence go down in the schools and in the areas where you've uh, been doing this all the time? I mean, you know, this is this is a part of of our communities. You know, unfortunately, this is a part of our community. I had a, I've had third generation gangsters in my classroom because their dad was a gangster, their uncles were gangsters, and then they're, they're gangsters. They're not gangsters because they want to be gangsters. They're gangsters because everyone in the apartment is gangsters, you know? And I think that's really, I think in that regard, I think it's really just survival mode at that point because if you're not a part of that, what are you a part of and what does that mean for your own safety right 
So I think I think a lot of a lot of times they're not left with many options, but to take part in that. There's it's not just that there's not options; it's the only option in so many ways. We have yeah. a. Marlon was talking earlier about the partnerships that we have with principals and teachers, and we had one principal that would call me all the time and say, "I've got five students that are homeless. Um, what are you going to do about it?" <laughs> right? <laughs> wow. You know? And and. And as if, like, when we say the word partner, she was really banking on the fact that there were going to be people and churches and organizations that were going to actually care about these kids' lives, right? She called me one time and said, I've got a kid that, uh, who was witness to his, uh, his best friend killed outside of their apartment complex, and they're going to come for him because of this gang violence that was breaking out in the South. But she's like, I need to put him somewhere. You know, what are you going to do about it? She said to me again, she's called me five or six times and we've had the same discussion, you know? And so if those are the kinds of kids that we're with and we, we, it's, we can't say this isn't our responsibility, right? This is our responsibility. This is the responsibility, what it means to live in Houston, Texas, uh, you know? Um, and so we've, you know, my own family, we've had kids in our program that have lived with this role for a uh, for a while, we've, um, we've, we, so Marla and I show up with folks and we're like, what it means to be on our board, what it means to be in this program isn't about, again, handing out brown bags and lunches, you know, it, uh, it is about standing in what activists call solidarity, it's yeah. standing in the place with these students in a way that affects change and puts our own self at risk. So I think what happens many times is that the white community is not an at-risk community. We don't put ourselves in places at risk. And so what it means, I think, to, um, to really evoke change in our culture and society is that, um, is that we stand in places that put all of it at, at risk, particularly people that are much more privileged. And those of us on the screen are privileged. Um, and so we have to find uh, ways of standing with folks that um, haven't um, had the privileges we have. You know, when you just said that, you know, I, 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 I just wanted to re rewind with, you know, what Marlon said and, and that to me, if you guys are taking on the responsibility of bringing in a child into your own homes, I look at that as real and true impact. Um, so that I, I commend you guys for that. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's really about creating uh, creating systems that are going to sustain our communities. Uh, I remember a principal asked me if I could talk to a student because he was just doing really bad. And he, he, he made him a deal. It's like, hey, just do your homework, and I promise you, you're going to pass the school year. And the kid would still not do his homework. And I went up to him. He was in my class. Great kid. Always created poetry. And I asked him, I'm like, why can't you just do your homework? And he straight up looked at me and said, I am hungry at night. I can't do my homework because I am starving. And, and, and you know, when it, when, it, when it comes to a kid being so vulnerable where they're telling you, like, I'm hungry, you know, that, that, that's just crazy. Like, he's not saying I don't have internet. I don't, you know, like, I can't bike. I don't, I don't oh, have yeah. Food, right? Like, like it's just insane. I don't have a, a workspace at my house. It's like I'm hungry. I can't concentrate. I feel weak. Sometimes I go to sleep early. He told me that he used to take NyQuil so he could just fall asleep. 
I went to the principal. I was like, hey, this is this is the problem. What are we going to do about it? He created a, a uh, dinner program where the school now feeds them dinner. So from 5.30 to 6.30, you can go to this school and take your little brothers and little sisters and everyone gets a meal. So this is... It, this is change, right? Like this is impact. It's not this great, amazing thing. We're not saving them. We're, we're feeding them, right? And at least Monday through Friday, they don't have to worry about dinner, right? And so that's the that's the thing when we're talking about what does impact look like? What does community work look like? Sometimes we focus so much on what are we, how are we benefiting from it instead of how is our community benefiting from us, right? And it didn't take much for my Kano class. It really, it was the principal who basically said, I did not know this was going on. Let's make this happen. Right. You and know, it, it, it's interesting that you say that Marlon, because we just had a conversation with Brian Green, the, the, the CEO of the Houston food bank. And he, the same story that you're telling us now is the same story that he told us about another child here in Houston. And it blows my mind that we are in a position where we can't feed our kids. It, it's amazingly just unbelievable how we, we just don't realize. And, you know, it takes conversations like the one that we're having now and the one that we had with, with Brian Green to really kind of bring that out to light and really yeah. make people more aware. Because if people are not talking about it, people are not, not aware that these things are happening. Well, how can we make an impact to change that trajectory for the child, right? That's right. It's tough conversations. It's and and you know I commend Matt so much because what Matt does is he uses his platform to really to really call people out, man, and just say, "What are you doing? Like, are we just trying to feel good about ourselves, or are we really doing something?" You know, and he's using his platform where he doesn't have to. Right. He can play it safe and 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 be Dr. Matt Russell and, and have that soft yet manageable hair and, and, you know, not have to worry about anything. But he he puts it on the line every single time. Right. And I think people expect it from me. But when Matt does it, it is just so it, it's a comfort. It's a blanket. But it's at the same time, it's like a tight blanket on you where it's like, hey, listen, you're you're a little too comfortable. Right. You're a little too like this is going on. Like we need we need to do something about this. And it's a tough conversation to have. It's a tough conversation to have within our own communities. Right. It's a tough conversation to have where, where it's like, hey, what, what are we doing as a community? You know, so it's a, it's a tough conversation to have in our communities, especially outside of our communities. You know, and it's a and believe me, like when I talk to other nonprofits or where, they, where we get in panels and things like that, we do get the side eyes of like, man, why are you guys calling us out? We're not calling you out. We're just saying the truth, because if, if, if you're just worried about your website and pictures and donations and I we are so bad at marketing <laughs> <laughs> because we're always working. We're just bad. Like we'll go to lead events where we didn't take one picture and we're like, ah, we got to get better at it. <laughs> we're working the whole time. Right. And it's, it's just, I think, I think we take pride in that a little bit because I, I would rather have a 30 minute conversation with a student than walk around taking pictures and hashtagging, but we need to do that. <laughs> that is important. Bad at that. 
And but you see, but you see Matt just get caught in a moment, or 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 me get caught in a moment, and I think that's why it's so important to just connect with these communities, right? We have never approached the school about being in their school. Everything has always been a referral from a principal to another. It's that's awesome. All right, so uh, let me play. Uh, let me play the second one. It's from uh, Cody. You remember him? Yes. So uh, this again was uh, from 2018. It could have been, uh, I don't know, it could have been just written yesterday, it seems like. So uh, here we go. I am a product of the RZA, a product of the Jizza, a tribe called Quest, and Mr. Marilyn Manson. You see, Kurt taught me that the duty of youth is to challenge corruption. Well, following his instruction, I dismantle the construction that is a product of the devil's seduction of our establishment. These politicians are colorblind because all they see is green. Shield your eyes, shield your ears, shield your mind from the obscene. 17 submachine guns arm these teens like the Mujahideen. Doctors will give you a vaccine of saline. I wash my skin with chlorine breach to keep it bright and keep it white because if you're not white in this country, you're not right in this country. Now, that's not what I believe, but that's what I've come to see. So, so all my brothers and sisters with the melanin in your skin, I'm sorry that this is the type of world that we are living in. I'm sorry that our system doesn't want you to keep your nose clean. Just know that that's how they attack. Just know that they invented crack to hijack your mind and keep you out of whack because that's how the beast works and eliminates all threats, whether it be by the chemicals that they spray out of their jets or the way that our system forgets to take care of our vets or the way that they distribute these poisonous cigarettes. The orange man obsesses to oppress us. Nevertheless, we will progress. So I leave you with a quote from one of the greatest men to ever be. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight. <laughs> yeah that's just unreal uh, what do you think about when you hear that one again <laughs> come on i mean what do you think it's i tell, I tell, awesome. what, I tell you what <laughs> any kid any kid that brings up the jizza tribe called quest you, on, know, right? it, you know melanin in my skin it's it's just amazing right? it's just amazing how how allowing them to to be able to not have any boundaries and say hey look for inspiration yourself right for us to drop these names and just be like hey uh i remember this kid when i was like yo you know who wu-tang is he's like what's a wu-tang i'm like look him up <laughs> you're welcome no, but like them taking the initiative right like them taking the initiative to do research in that way right to 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 go and, and see the things that are wrong in their world, but at the same time, recognizing their own privilege and being accountable to their community and their brothers and sisters that are in pain, right? And even though he's struggling himself, he's recognizing their struggle. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that to take a backseat in a, in a at-risk neighborhood when you have your own struggle and understand that someone is struggling a lot more than you? How beautiful is that? You know, and I think, oh my gosh, I can, that was just beautiful, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome, <laughs> you <got> man. <laughs> awesome. 
So, uh, well, I think you guys are uh, definitely empowering artists, you know, and uh, I'm going to say heavy number 2020. Uh, how does 2021 look for Iconoclast as we kind of close things out? We're, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for 2021. I'm excited simply because God keeps showing up in our program, man. Um, and, and I don't know. Um, I think my whole life, God has always been present. And, and I think God put Matt in my life and, 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 and along with other, these amazing people that our program's going to make it. And, and, and we're going to go back to connecting with our students and we're going to go back to just impacting and doing our work. So I'm excited. I'm always optimistic. Uh, we're blessed to be doing the work that we're doing. I mean, I get to write poetry for a living. You know what I mean? Like that's, there's still poets around, you know? Not a lot of people do what they love. So I, you know, you got to be a little jealous about that. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? What's 2021 looking like for Iconoclast? Yeah. You know, it's hard not to be optimistic when you're around Marlo Azama. So um, I, you know, in terms of Iconoclast and our organization, I'm, I'm stoked um, because we're pushing um, our little organization is pushing some really important boundaries we're, um, we've always been an organization that has punched above our weight. And so we have never let the fact that we're, um, we're hanging on uh, by lack of resources or whatever to, to um, hamper our imagination. And so we, uh, part of what Marlon kind of pointed to, an app that we're developing um, in-house that's uh, bespoken. And I think it has a potential to revolutionize uh, some things, not just for us, but for um, for education and for some of the things at large, um, I, our board is strong. Our students are amazing. So we're we've got a we've got a community that's kind of small, tight, scrappy, and a little pissed off, you know. And so I've, I I always will put my money on those kind of folks, um, yep. you know. Uh, and so um, so I'm excited about it, and also um, deeply concerned for our students. Uh, this year has has been really hard. One of the things we didn't talk about is um, the fact that a lot of our students are hungry, not just in school, but now out of school even more. Um, that uh, public schools are the number one um, reporters of in-home violence and abuse, right? And so uh, they're also the number one reporters of food scarcity within the community. And so... Um, to have students that are out of school for that long um, is is a scary uh, deal. And I think there's also a lot of mental health um, strain that these kids are under. And so I'm both excited for our, our we're kind of Marlon and I both and our boards chomping to get back into the schools because of that, because of we know that there's going to be um, a lot of need. And so um, uh, for that, I'm excited. Oh, most definitely. And uh, we thank you and your students and for all that they're doing and for sharing their stories and their hearts. And uh, Yeah, don't forget about the socials. <laughs> we forgot. You keep forgetting the socials, so don't I forget know. the socials. So give, give a shout out to your so- social media. Yeah, you can follow us at Iconoclast Artists on uh, Instagram and Iconoclast Sessions on Facebook. Nice. See, you're good at marketing. <laughs> Send us a message if you want to get involved. If if any any idea you have, send us a message. 
Hit that donate button on our website. Hit that donate button, iconoclastartist.org. Yes. <laughs> it is It is a season of giving, so so absolutely. If there's a donate button, you know, it is a season of giving, so let's be sure to do that. Yeah, I agree. Are you guys uh, going to be able to do uh, They Say? Are you going to need to make a decision on that here? We're uh, we're finalizing that right now, and and it looks like we're going to really try to make that happen. Uh, awesome. We're very excited uh, simply because that's one of those things that we look forward to every year. And Awesome. Yeah, I would uh, definitely recommend anybody to uh, get on the mailing list because uh, they do a lot of great poetry events. Um, once the pandemic gets behind us, uh, they do a lot of in-house events, and it's just uh, beautiful and amazing. I know that all this started on a napkin, but uh, but I got to think that in listening to you guys, you probably needed a paper towel that night, and uh, <laughs> you know I think that you probably <laughs> you need you need a huge wall because of all the things that you guys are doing uh, that were definitely not on that napkin, and uh, keep on making an impact uh, to your students and to your artists, and uh, keep keep on making an impact because you're making an impact on me. I've been to these uh, they say readings, and yeah, you can't help but. Uh, joyfully get weavy and sometimes yeah just heartfelt it's just awesome so uh, i thank you guys uh, continue uh, nothing but love to you guys and uh, what you're doing and uh, take care thank you so thank much thanks guys. guys thank you appreciate it Bye. thanks again to matt and marlon for stopping by the show Please check out iconoclastartist.org or check them out on their Facebook and Instagram pages and uh, get on their mailing list and try to keep up with them and uh, noodle around the website and uh, maybe there's some uh, places for you to volunteer or uh, donate or just keep track of uh, all the great things that these artists are doing because they're definitely pouring out their hearts to us and uh, they're worthy stories to uh, have ears attached to. So until next time, this is the show.